0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible study teaching podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So, Hebrews chapter 10. Um, let's just do a little bit of review. Go all the way back to chapter 5 for just a moment. Go back to chapter 5, because this is where this, actually, um, let's go back to chapter 4, verse 14. Um, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 is really where this whole topic in the book of Hebrews starts. So, in Hebrews 4, 14, the writer says this, Since then we have a great, what? High priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So, For the past many chapters, from chapters 4, verse 14, all the way through chapter 10, verse 29, this huge chunk, a large section of the book of Hebrews. The writer has been focusing on Jesus being our great high priest. And so in chapter 7, he talked about Melchizedek. In chapter 8, he talked about the sacrificial system. We looked at chapter 9, the sacrificial system. All this talk about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Jesus is the great high priest. And so now as we get to chapter 10, what we're going to see here is that he's going to bring everything to a conclusion to this section before he launches on a new section. So this is kind of the big crescendo of Jesus being the high priest. And so there's going to be a lot of repetition, but he's doing that to drive home the point. And we've got to remember, who's the original audience? They're Jewish Christians that are tempted to fall back into... Judaism. And so for them, it's a huge deal to realize that Jesus is a better high priest than all those Old Testament sacrificial systems. And you may be thinking, man, there's so much repetition and he keeps talking about the same thing over and over again. It's getting, you may think this is getting kind of old. I I got the point. And the the point is we don't struggle with what these original readers struggled with. Um, And so the reason he's repeating this is he's a good pastor. He's their pastor. He wants them to get it. He has to reiterate it. He doesn't want them to fall away. Remember the whole thing about falling away or drifting? He doesn't want them to do that. So as we get into chapter 10, he's bringing things to a close. So there are two sections we're going to look at tonight. Part one is verses 1 through 18. And here's the main point of verses 1 through 18. Christ's once and for all sacrifice grants us a permanent position of unending access to God's presence. We could just probably go home with that statement right there. But we're going to unpack what that means. Okay? And so in this section, there's as opposed to going verse by verse, because I think it gets kind of, I don't want to say repetitive, because I don't want to say that, but we've gone over this ground. What I've done is I think I've extracted five major teachings in this section. So we're going to look at it basically thematically at these sections. But let's go ahead and read it and then get the get the feel of, of what he's saying. So chapter 10 verses 1 through 18. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never circle that word never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible, another strong word, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings... You've not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Okay, I don't think I need to belabor the point that the Old Testament sacrificial system was what? It was the Day of Atonement. How many times did it happen? Once a year? What types of sins were covered? Only unintentional sins. The priest had to go in and offer sins for him, or offer sacrifices for his own sins. And so that whole sacrificial system we, we've been over. But here's the point. Here's point number one of these five major teachings. The old covenant could never completely forgive all sin. Notice what verse 1 says. It can never make perfect those who draw near. Verse 11, it can never take away sins. And so the point is, is that Old Testament, it's impossible for that Old Testament system to completely forgive all sin. And here's the question why. Why could that Old Testament system not take away all sin? And here's the answer. We looked at this last time, but I want to review it because I think it's important. Because of the radical corruption of our sin that we inherited from Adam, only a complete and definitive cleansing will ever get to the core of our depravity. Remember the three areas of sin that we talked about? The easy one that we that we can see is Outward sins we commit. We lie, we cuss, we get mad, we commit adultery, we we steal. we, We do things outwardly, and those are easy to see. But we also remember that sins are also inward sins of the heart and attitude. And then the ultimate question is, well, where do those come from? They come from our nature, our sin nature inherited from Adam. So the Old Testament sacrificial system dealt with what? Outward sins unintentional outward sins, and it only lasted a year. It never got to the root, did it? Did it ever get to attitudes of the heart? And could it ever take away your depravity that you inherited from Adam? No. So what we need then is a complete cleansing. We need to be made perfect. And that's what it says there. Look at verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never... Never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, can never do what? Make perfect those who draw near. Now, let's just be careful with what that word means. What does it not mean? Does it mean that we're never going to sin? No. It it, it doesn't talk about that once we've become a Christian and once we trust Christ for salvation, we're never ever going to sin again. We're always going to be perfect. That's not what the word means. Let's go see how this word's been used before. Go back to chapter 2, verse 10. talking about jesus here for it was fitting that he jesus for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering so that word's been used for jesus we looked at it the last time in chapter 9 verse 9 according to this arrangement gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot what perfect the conscience of Of the worshiper. So make perfect here deals with this. It really, the word carries the idea of definitive and complete cleansing to the very core of our depravity. This being made perfect by Jesus means his sacrifice gets down to the very root of who we are and cleans us from the inside out totally and completely so that we're acceptable before God. It's not just a temporary washing. It's not just behavior modification. It's not just, hey, he's going to take care of your outward sins for a period of time. It's I'm going to change your very nature from the inside out through my death on the cross. Because what did Adam do? Adam sinned. What did we inherit from Adam? Sin. sin. So we need a second Adam, Jesus, to undo what the first Adam did. So only a sinless, perfect Savior can come and undo what Adam did, and that's Jesus. And he's got to get to the core. Can't just be window dressing of our sin. He's got to be. We've got to be made perfect to the core of who we are. Now, you may think this is very interesting. Verses 5 through 7. Somebody trying to come in? Oh. You can interrupt. (laughs) Let's look at the second main point here. So number one was that those Old Testament sacrificial offerings could never get to the core of the issue. But here's an interesting thing that that the writer throws in here. He quotes, number two, Psalm chapter 40 verses 6 through 8 is quoted to show that Jesus came to do God's will by securing the salvation of his people. In verses 5 through 7, the writer quotes Psalm chapter 40 verses 6 through 8, which is a Psalm of David. Now, it's interesting. What does the psalm say? Let's just read it from the, the Hebrew text, but you can go back to the psalms and read it there, but let's read it how he quotes it here. Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you have prepared me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, David's writing the psalm. But could David ever offer his body to do God's will that was written in the scroll in order to completely cleanse? So when David gives that psalm, it is a messianic psalm predicting what Jesus is going to do in the future. And so the writer of Hebrews is taking an Old Testament psalm that David wrote and he's saying that's about Jesus because Jesus is the only one that can offer his body that was prepared and he's the only one that can come to do the will of the Father and he's the only one that was written about in the scroll of old. So the the, the thing that's interesting is that Jesus came to do the will of God. He he repeats that. Look at verse 7. Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. Verse 9. Then he added, Behold, I've come to do your will. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. Now, it's interesting, when you go look at the Gospel of John, you've got these statements about how Jesus did that. And there's some very interesting and pretty, actually pretty awesome statements of Jesus. So let's just look at three of these statements that talk about Jesus doing the will of the Father. Because I think it's important for us to understand that Jesus came from heaven, left His glory to come do the will of the Father and that was to secure our salvation. Okay? So, what did Jesus say about himself in John 4 34? Jesus said to them, He's talking to his disciples, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's a powerful statement. What is Jesus saying? why does he say my food is to do the will of the Father? That's a weird thing. Couldn't Jesus just said, I'm here to do the will of my Father. Why does he say my food is to the Father? Is to do the will of the Father. What is that? It sustains him. what's the imagery here? What Jesus, yeah, what Jesus is saying is everything about me while on earth, what keeps me going, what sustains me, what gets me up in the morning. I guess if you use that vernacular for Jesus, is to do the will of God and to accomplish his work. To accomplish his work. Okay? Now, another interesting statement from Jesus. Hey Dale, come on in. Uh, John 8 29 says this. Jesus also says, And he who sent me is with me. He's talking about the Father. He has not left me alone. Listen to what Jesus says. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So what did Jesus, what was Jesus' heartbeat while on earth? <laughs> My sustenance, my food is to do the will of God, to accomplish His work, and I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Okay? Now, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before He's being betrayed, in John 17, He prays what's called the High Priestly Prayer. Listen to the prayer of Jesus. It's awesome. We could spend all night just talking about the first five verses of this prayer. Listen to what Jesus prays. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, he's praying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Let's just stop right there. That's the first three verses. Father, the hour has come. What's he talking about? What's the hour that's come? The cross. And what's first and foremost on Jesus' mind as he's sweating drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane? What's on his mind? Father, I want you to receive glory. And you've given me authority over all flesh. And as a matter of fact, you've given me those whom you've given me before the foundation of the world, you've given those to me. And this is eternal life. What is, what is salvation? If you were to somebody say to you, What's salvation? What's eternal life? Jesus answers it for us. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's, 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 that's the gospel in a nutshell. What's the most important thing? To know, not just have head knowledge, but to have this experiential, personal knowledge of God, the only true living God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Now let's go on and read the rest of his prayer. Listen to what he says. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work That you gave me to do. And now Father glorify me in your own presence. With the glory that I had with you. Before the world existed. I've accomplished the work you gave me to do. I always do what's pleasing to the Father. I've come to do the will of the Father. I've come to accomplish the work that the Father gave me. I've come to glorify the Father. And what was the last. One of the last words Jesus said. When he was hanging on the cross. It is finished. So. Jesus came to f- accomplish the will of the Father. Now, we may downplay that and say, well, that's okay. That's, that's a cool thought. Jesus obeyed His Father. What if Jesus had not obeyed His Father? What if Jesus had not accomplished His will? What if Jesus didn't want to glorify God? <coughs> Would there be any salvation? Would He be the sinless, perfect Savior? So let me teach you guys two theological terms, Okay. Two theological terms that you may have heard maybe in your reading somewhere or maybe you've heard these, um, sometimes theologians use them, uh, and and wrapped up in Jesus being obedient to God's will, they're they're called the active obedience and the passive obedience of Jesus. The active obedience and the passive obedience. Here's what the active obedience of Jesus is because both of them are equally important. You can't have one without the other or you lose the gospel. The active obedience of Jesus is his sinless, in his sinless life on earth, Jesus actively obeyed the entirety of God's moral law and thought, word, and deed. Thought, word, and deed. Never had an evil thought, never had an evil deed, never had an evil word. Completely. What would happen if Jesus had not actively obeyed the entirety of God's moral law? Would he be qualified to go to the cross for us? Okay? So in his active obedience, it really is talking about his obedience to all of God's law. The other type of obedience is called the passive obedience. The and the reason it's called passive obedience is in the incarnation, Jesus laid aside his rights and became obedient to death on the cross. This is more talking about Jesus laying aside his rights and dying on the cross in our place. And excuse me, excuse me we get that from Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, whom though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or greedily held on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. There's the word obedient to what? To the point of death, even death on a cross. So point number one, the writer of Hebrews is telling us, That Old Testament sacrificial system could never get to the root of your sin. Number two, it's imperative that Jesus came to do the will of the Father. Okay, well, what did Jesus do after he did the will of the Father? Number three, after his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, Jesus sat down in heaven as our ruler and our high priest. What does verse 12 say? But when Christ had offered how many times? For, read it in your your text. For all time, how many sacrifices? A single sacrifice. What did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. Now, how does the book of Hebrews start? Let's go back. This is how he started the whole book. I don't know if you remember, all the way back in September. Look at just verses 1 through 3. it's really referring back to Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And I don't think I have it up there, but let's just turn to Psalm 110. It's the most quoted psalm. And you have to ask a question. If it's the most quoted psalm. 110? Yeah, Psalm 110. One, okay. No, Psalm 110. Verse 1, this is a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This over and over again speaks about the finished work of Christ, a prophecy about the finished work of Christ that after he died on the cross, after he rose again, after he went back up to heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, when he sat down, there's three things that it really means. Number one, he sat down because the work was completely finished. Remember, I've talked about the one piece of furniture that wasn't in the temple, a chair, because the priests could never sit down. They were never done. They were always moving. So a chair, like when I sit in this chair, when I get home tonight after I'm done teaching, I'm going to sit down in my nice easy chair because it is done. The night is done. Okay, we get that. But number two, (coughs) he sat down in a position of authority. Where is he seated? At the right hand, which represents a position of authority, the son, the firstborn son. And what does he say? He's going to make his enemies a footstool. He sat down in order to rule and reign as sovereign Lord. So we need to always remember where Jesus is right now. Where is he right now? He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven in his glorified, resurrected body. What's he doing? He's interceding for us. He's praying for us. He's representing us. And he's making his enemies a footstool. And one day he's going to come back. That would be an awesome moment. I never thought about that, where God looks to Jesus and says, it's time now, get up <laughs> and go back. Get up from being seated and go back. That would be an awesome moment. I mean, I, don't, I mean, just that's, a, that's, that's an inter-Trinitarian thing I think, think we're going to experience. I can see the gleam in the Father's eye when he looks down at the Son and says, okay, it's time. Let's go. That's pretty cool. All right. This is where I really want us to camp out because I think this is the point of what he's been saying these entire five chapters. Okay. Number four His once and for all sacrifice has permanently purified his people into a forgiven position with unhindered access to God. Two very important verses in this passage verse 10. And verse 14, I love both these verses. I would just underline them because I think they're, they're so important. Verse 10, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Okay, so according, verse 10, according to God's will, we have been sanctified through Jesus once and for all does anybody have a different word in their translation besides sanctified in verse 10 does anybody have consecrated or set apart does everybody have sanctified anybody have made holy made made, made, holy. made holy okay yeah it's from the Greek same Greek word but let's talk about let me give you chair I'm gonna teach you guys a little bit of Greek tonight Don't worry, it won't make your head explode and you be careful not to use this at home. This is something, you know, you don't want to go home and start doing this. No, I'm just joking. Um, The word sanctified is what we call a perfect passive participle. And that may not mean much to you, but there's there's an important reason why it's used in the book of Hebrews, the perfect tense. We do not have the perfect tense in the English language, per se, like the way they do in the Greek language. There's simple past tense action, right? He sanctified now there's a there's a there's a past tense verb in the Greek language that's called the eris tense but eris just basically means snapshot or um, point in time action a completed the point in time action. he sanctified which means he sanctified us one sanctified us he did it it's completed the perfect tense on the other hand, shows that it was a completed action that happened when Jesus died on the cross. A completed action once we trusted Christ for salvation. And because it's in the perfect tense, it means it will forever stand completed. So why is that important with the word perfected or the word sanctified? Why is it important that it's in the perfect tense? What does that mean theologically? Think. What does it mean theologically when the writer used the perfect tense and not... The aorist tense. What does it tell you about your position? Can your sanctification, can your being set apart, can your being perfectly, completely cleansed ever be undone? No. Does it depend upon how good you are one day? If you're really, really good, God must love you more you're really blowing it one day you better watch out because you may get yourself out of that position no the passive nature of it number two shows that it was done to us when you're when something's done passively to you you're passive right you're not acting you're not cleansing yourself you're not washing yourself so here's what it really means if you combine these two ideas if you if you look at the words that are used there made perfect Verse 1, it says, these, these could never perfect the worshiper. Verse 10, we've been sanctified. Verse 14, he has perfected all these words, perfected, sanctified. When you put all these together, especially with the use of the perfect tense, here's what he's teaching. This is the most important thing. Because of Christ's death for us, we now stand in a permanent and complete position of being comprehensively cleansed and forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future, as well as the depth of our depraved nature. Why is that good news? Hopefully it's good news to you. Why is it important that it's a position? Does that position change? Can you ever get yourself out of that position if, you, if, if Jesus has secured you in that position? What happened with the Old Testament? What did you have to wait for? I had to wait for another year to come around. It couldn't get to the depth of your soul. It couldn't get to the depth of your depravity. So I just thought about some different things that this means, just thinking about it. What does this mean? Well, these all may sound like the same thing, but let's just go with it because I want us to dwell on it tonight. We have unhindered, think of that word access. What does unhindered access mean? There's no barrier, there's nothing. And what does access mean? Anytime entrance to God without the constant barrier of accumulated sins piling on top year after year. Think about that. If God, if, if if we still were under the Old Testament system, what would happen? Every time you accumulated a sin and piled upon a sin and piled upon a sin, you would keep accumulating sin after sin after sin after sin. And could you ever get into God's good graces? No. But now because you've been perfected you've been cleansed, you've been completely purged once and for all, you have unhindered access to God. Who was the only one in the Old Testament that really had unhindered access to God? And I will argue there's only probably one person in the Old Testament I believe that had unhindered access to God. And that was probably Adam and Eve before the fall, but that doesn't count because after the fall, Moses is probably the only one who had unhindered access because God called him up the mountain and he got, to meet, he, didn't, he got to meet God on the mountain. He didn't have to go in the Holy of Holies. Even the high priest did not have unhindered access to God because he could only go in, what, one time a year? And he had to, you know. So even the greatest Old Testament saint that you can think of, Moses, who had somewhat of unhindered access to God, even in a limited sense, but he still didn't get to go to the Promised Land. You and I have a greater privilege than Moses ever did on top of that mountain. Because we have unhindered access to the very throne of God whenever we want to go there. Not only that, we're in a permanent position of being accepted by God. It's a permanent position. It doesn't shift or change or we don't have to worry about God's not up there with his, you know, little flowers. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me. Are you know, you're worried about which one's it gonna end on? You know, have I made God so mad that he loves me not? This position is permanent. That's an important thing to remember. It's, it's a position, it's access. We also need to remember this. This position qualifies us to draw near to God. Notice what it says there in verse 1. Those Old Testament sacrifices could never perfect those who draw near. What, what comes up to your mind when you think about the word draw near? What, what image does that evoke, drawing near to God? Drawing near. When do you most often draw near to God? When you pray. When you worship. And could you, could, can anybody, like, here's a, here's a trick question. Let me ask you a trick question. Can non-Christians pray to God? That's <laughs> <Uh-oh. laughs> a trick question. Some of you are like, What? Are they talk? They're talking to God in hopes that He listens. But are they drawing near to God with unhindered access because their sins are given through the sacrifice of Christ? Okay, so there's a difference there, right? Okay. Now the question is: Well, how how then do you become a Christian? Because if you know if you pray the sinner's prayer, that gets you you know gets you in. So obviously, a non-Christian's got to be able to pray to God sometime to first become a Christian. That's not the point. The point is that there are a lot of people out there that think they have this pipeline to God but without Christ do they really they're just talking in the air I mean they think they're talking and I'm not saying don't hear me wrong I don't I'm not saying God doesn't listen and I'm not saying God doesn't answer because God is sovereign and can do what he wants but what I'm saying is they don't have the privilege of having what we have in that we have the permanent position of being completely forgiven through Christ and having that unhindered access non-Christians can never get that until they become a Christian Okay, And then also think about this. This didn't come from me. This came from Charles Spurgeon as I was reading one of his sermons on this. He just reminded me of this. This access and position was God's plan before the foundation of the world. God planned it for you. Look at Ephesians. It's on your sheet there. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing that you can think of even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be what? Holy and blameless before him. Does that sound like what we're talking about here? Holy and blameless and completely forgiven and access? That was predestined for us before the world began. In love, he predestined for us for adoption, that access, adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. None of you have ever probably heard of George Smeaton. Have you ever heard of George Smeaton? I don't think you have. If you have, I'd be very surprised. He was a Scottish professor of New Testament in the mid-1800s who wrote a book called The Apostles' Doctrine of the Atonement that had a profound effect on Spurgeon. Spurgeon really got a lot, but he basically went through every single passage in the New Testament that talks about the cross and wrote extensively about every passage and exegeted it and exposited it. So it's like, a, it's like this one big, huge, thick book on the cross. And as I was going and reading his book this week, just to kind of get some insight, I love the way he commented on this passage. On on chapter 10, verse 14, here's what he said. Now, the language is a little bit old, but I want you just to think about what he says here. He gives a definition of what he, this is what he thinks. Based upon his teaching and his understanding, here's how he would define what we've been talking about, this unhindered access and position. He says this, When the one sacrifice is said to perfect them, the meaning is, that it affected full remission, that means full forgiveness, a complete expiation, that's a complete taking away, objectively securing personal acceptance, priestly standing, covenant nearness as a chosen people, and subjectively securing the purging of conscience or the making of the worshiper perfect as pertaining to conscience. What affected this? Not Christ's doctrine nor his example, but the offering of his body wants. That may not mean much to you, but the word that I really like in that is this term here, covenant nearness. We have a covenant nearness to God. We have this access to God. We, we're part of the covenant, the new covenant. We have all of our sins forgiven. We're in this position of being near. We have a priestly standing. We're secure. We're accepted. Our conscience has been purged. We're, we're made, we've been made perfect, and this is all done by the once and for all sacrifice of jesus paul says it this way in romans 5 1 through 2 therefore since we've been justified by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ through him jesus what have we obtained access to who god by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of god now, what's the crescendo? What's the final thing he brings this whole thing to a close? Here's number five. It's a repetition of the new covenant prophecy from Jeremiah 31. Concludes this entire section proving the sufficiency and finality of Jesus' death on the cross. Has not he already quoted this back in chapter eight? The longest quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. He quotes Jeremiah 31, 31, the new covenant. And then he ends with it again. Why does he repeat it? He repeats it for effect. He wants us to get that ringing in our ears. And one of the last words we hear here. Verse 16. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Okay. Section completed. From Hebrews 4:14 4, to 10, actually 18. There's a whole section on the high priestly sacrifice of Christ as far more superior than the Old Testament priesthood, the Old Testament sacrificial system. He's the mediator of a new covenant. He's the mediator of better promises. Jesus is better. He gives us unhindered access to the very throne of God by His once and for all sacrifice on the cross. Okay. Now, the writer of Hebrews is going to shift gears big time And so we go to part two, and here's part two. Okay. Part two is our practical response to Christ's finished work on the cross. So how do we respond to this? What are we supposed to do in light of this? Yes, we're supposed to worship. Yes, we're supposed to gain knowledge. Yes, it's supposed to inflame our hearts with love, but the writer here says, listen, I've got some specific things I want you to do in light of what you've just learned about Jesus. And so this is where we go into part two. So let's read verses 19 through 25, and let's see how he brings this into practicality. Okay? Verse 19, therefore. Therefore is what? What's the therefore, therefore? Therefore. It's therefore to show us that he's shifting gears and bringing things into a new new topic. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, okay, because that's all true, here's what I want you to do. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, This is pretty easy to see. Verses 19 through 21 give us really a summary statement of everything he said up to this point, just reminding us of it. And then in verses 22 through 25, he gives us some practical exhortations of what we're supposed to do. Now, what does he say there? Brothers, we have what? What's the word that you have there in verse 19? We have confidence. Did you say confidence? Okay. We have confidence. Why why would we have confidence? What has he just said for the past five chapters? You have permanent access to the very throne room of God because of Christ. This should lead you to have confidence. It's a very specific word. It, It really means authorization. It means you're authorized. You have complete freedom. You have complete access. Now, anybody here, Have the access or the authorization to walk up to the White House, go through the front gates, go into the Oval Office, plop down in the chair and say, hey, President Obama, let's have a chat. Anybody here have that authorization to do that? Nobody here has that authorization. That's what the word means. We have the authorization. We have the authority. We have the access. We have the confidence to do what? To enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Not in our own confidence, but in what Christ has done for us. We don't come in our own deeds. We don't come in our good works. We don't come because we're good. It's because of what Christ has done. Now, the main verb in this passage here is opened. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, by a new and living way that he opened for us. Really, the word links back to that word confidence. Think about this have in your mind imagery the doors have been just wide open to god's presence the doors have been flung wide open to god's presence of the blood of christ and you have the authority you have the access you have the confidence to walk right through those doors without fear of getting killed without fear of getting smitten without fear of getting obliterated you can come into the very presence of god with your request with your with your needs with your hurts with everything that you've got going on in your life because christ grants you access <laughs> It really means this, the way the word's used in the Greek language. It means to make a way that wasn't there before, to dedicate or pave the way for the very first time. That's why he says it's a new and living way. Why is it a new way? Well, it's a new way because it wasn't available for all people back in the Old Testament. Not until the fulfillment of the new covenant in Christ and His blood did, did anybody have this free access or authorization. So it's a new way in the sense that the Old Testament can never give you that. And the word for new is interesting here too. The word for new, there's two words for new in the Greek. Um, this, this word really means freshly slaughtered. A freshly slaughtered way. What image does that evoke? I don't know why he used that, but it's gone with that sacrificial image there. It shows, again, Jesus being the slaughtered lamb. It's a living way. It's not only just a new way, but it's a living way. In other words, it's a vibrant entrance, not just into a doctrine or into a concept. Who are you having? What, what are you having? What are you having access to? A dynamic relationship with the person not just some mental assent to facts about Jesus, but having a personal relationship with Him. It's, It's having dynamic union with God Himself. It's not religion. It's a relationship with the living God through Christ. It's a new way. It's a living way. And notice that, Verse 21 says, we have a great high priest over the house of God. That's just the summary statement he's been saying all through these chapters. Jesus is the great high priest over the house of God. Who's the house of God? Well, it's not the Old Testament tabernacle. It's not the Old Testament temple. It's us. We now are the house of God. And you can go back to Hebrews chapter 3. Let's just go back there for a minute. He's already introduced this imagery of Jesus being over the house of God. And so he brings it up again and just tells us, listen, Jesus is the builder of the house. We're the house. We're the church. He's over us. He's building us. He's the master of the house. He's the great high priest over the house. He's greater than Moses. Um, Let's look look at this here in verse, chapter 3, verse, let's just start in verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to things that were to be spoken about later. But Christ is faithful not in God's house, but over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and hope. So it's this whole imagery that Jesus is building for himself a church. Jesus is over the church. Jesus is ruling the church. He's, he's the great high priest over God's house. Okay, so here's where it gets practical. In light of what Jesus has done for us as his death on the cross, giving us access of who he is as the great high priest, the question then becomes, well, how should we respond? There's a lot of ways you can respond, but the writer here gives what we call three exhortations. Now, the reason that they're called exhortations is they're not commands. These aren't, he's not commanding us. These are strong encouragements. And that's why they all start with the terminology. Where's my, there it goes. They all start with that terminology, let us. And notice how he includes himself in that. Let us. Let us draw near. Let us do these things. So he's including himself in this. So he's saying, listen, all of us as believers have a responsibility to do this. I'm strongly encouraging us to do this. So what are these three things he's strongly encouraging us to do? And by the way, these are all in the present tense, which means that they are ongoing, continual actions. They're not one-time things that we should do every now and then. These are things that should mark our lifestyle as Christians that we should be doing ongoingly, if that's a word, continually, is a lifestyle. So here's the first let us that he tells us to do. Number one, let us draw near in faith. If we have access, what's the obvious conclusion? What should we do? Draw near. Come in. Draw near with a sincere heart. We're we're to exercise faith. Notice what he says there. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, metaphorically, have, not that you, you know, I don't think he's talking about baptism here with your bodies washed with pure water per se in this passage of Scripture, but has not he been talking about your conscience and being purged and being totally forgiven of all sin? If that's true, then he says, let's draw near with the assurance of faith. We are to be people who exercise faith. Not just any faith, but the full assurance of faith. That word full assurance meant to fill a cup or a vessel to fullness. Why can we draw near? Again, it's kind of a repeat, but our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies with pure water. Guess what tense those verbs are in? Those verbs sprinkled and washed are in the perfect tense. We looked at that just a minute ago, which means that the action was completed in the past on the cross and the results stand complete in the presence. And we've looked at this Ezekiel passage before, but again, I just want to remind you of the prophecy from the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk on my statutes, and be careful to obey all my rules. So what does it mean to draw near? It implies prayer. Back in four sixteen, he said, He's already told us, let us draw near, let us with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's the thing that's weird about this. Let me ask you just a a trick question. Do we have unhindered access to God? Yes. Then why does he call us to draw near? What does it mean to draw near? Why just have access to God? It's a cool thing. Let me give you a Tozer quote to think about from A.W. Tozer. To have found God and still to pursue Him is the soul's paradox of love. Scorned indeed by the too easily satisfied religionist, but justified and happy experience by the children of the burning heart. Let me just tell you what he's saying there. It's a paradox to have God, but still chase God. To still draw near to God. Just because we're saved and have access, it doesn't mean we just sit back and do nothing. What does it mean that we do? We draw near. Now, the question we have to ask is, what does it mean to draw near? Well, you can put it another way and say, well, it means to passionately pursue Jesus. Okay, what does it mean to passionately pursue Jesus? Well, the best place I can take us is the Psalms where we're going to look at some words that don't quite make sense. But they're feeling words. Okay? This is not a you know an old song we used to sing back in the 80s, as the deer panteth for the water. And so it's a cute little song, but think about the imagery here. Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing stream, so pants my soul for you. My soul thirsts for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? What word does he have here? Pants. And thirsts. What images do those two words evoke, especially from a deer running through a forest? What is that? What do those words conjure up in your mind? <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to put into words, isn't it? A basic need. A basic need. Who doesn't need? What does pant mean? I need air. What does thirst mean? I need water. Let's keep looking at some of these other psalms. Psalm 63. Oh, God, you are my... These are like old songs. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. What words do we have here? We've got faint. We've got seek. We've also got thirst. That looks really weird. Let me rewrite that. I don't even know what faints. Okay, let's look at Psalm 84, 1 through 2. How lovely is, how lovely, these are all songs. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of God, host. My soul longs, there's a different word. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing to the living God. I mean, think about these words for a moment. Pants, thirsts, faints, seeks, longs. Does that? Yearns. Does that describe your attitude towards Jesus? I'm not asking you to answer out loud. I think if we were to take all these words together, it paints a picture for what it means to draw near. I am desperate for God. Just like I'm desperate for air, desperate for water. My strength is zapped. I'm longing, looking. I, I, I'm, everything about me is pursuing God. I'm drawing near to god i want to enjoy god i want to go deeper in christ i want to enjoy big word here i want to enjoy the access i have you could walk away from here and just say oh cool i've got access to god through jesus that's pretty cool i don't want you to walk away and say that's pretty cool i want you to say That is so awesome. I'm going to enjoy, so enjoy this access I have to God. that I'm going to pant for Jesus. I'm going to thirst for Jesus. I'm going to faint for Jesus. I'm going to seek Him. I'm going to long Him until I find Him. I've already found Him, but I need to find Him. Now, does that make sense? It's a paradox. I already have access, but I want Him. I already have unhindered position access, but I want more of Him. I think that's what the writer of Hebrews here is saying, draw near with the full assurance of faith. Enjoy the access you have to God. Draw near. Long for Him. Let me give you a C.S. Lewis quote that you've heard many times from me. C.S. Lewis said this, We're half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Infinite joy is offered us. Infinite enjoyment is offered us in Christ Jesus through this access we have. But oftentimes, instead of enjoying Jesus, what are we doing? Making little mud pies in the slums when he is this beautiful ocean out here that we can just dive into and experience all of him, okay? So that's number one practical application. In light of this whole high priestly thing about Jesus, don't go away with more theology in your mind that you have access. Go home and enjoy the access and pursue and faint and long and thirst and develop and cultivate a yearning for Jesus. That's, That's number one. So that's more of the passionate, that's more of the emotional, that's more of the um, heartfelt application. Now let's get to a different type of application that's just as important. We've got to have the balance. What's the second thing he says here in the let us's? Let us what? Hold fast our confession of hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. Hold fast. Remember, it's a present active verb. Keep on continually holding fast. What are we to hold fast to? Our confession. It almost always in the context of Hebrews, as we've look, been looking at over these weeks, when the writer speaks of hope, when the writer speaks of our confession, it almost always refers to the objective work of Christ in salvation. It's not a wishful thinking or based on our feelings. This is theology. This is truth. This is the the objective reality of the gospel. So you see the two things in balance here? Let me just write two words up here. These two things need to be in balance in your Christian life. Okay, so we've got the um, draw near. I'm going to put different words here. We've got draw near and we've got hold fast, the confession. This deals more with the heart. This deals more with the head. This deals more with your passions. This deals more with truth. This deals more with um, worship. This deals more with theology and doctrine. So let me ask you a question. Which of these two is more important? Another trick question. Let me ask you a different way. What happens if you get both of those out of balance? What happens if you're way over here on the heart side, the passion side, the worship side, and you neglect the truth and the theology? What what ditch can you fall into if you go way over on that side? Some mushy theology. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you just love Jesus and everything's okay. It's like a roller coaster. (laughs) Yeah. What happens if you go too far over on the head, truth, theology, doctrine, you don't have any passion or heart? You can become legalistic and cold and, you know, we're the frozen chosen. And So here's my point. Here's my argument. You need both in balance, but I think this informs this. If you don't know the truth and the theology of who God is you're not going to worship him the way that you want to worship him. And the more that you worship him and have a desire for him, the more you're going to want to know who he is. So these two things keep flowing back and forth between each other. You're always wanting to draw near. And at the same time, you're always going to want to draw hold fast to the truth. And you need both. You've got to hold fast to that confession. You've got to hold fast to that theology. you got to hold fast to that doctrine. But at the same time, you better love Jesus and have pursuing him and faint for him. And so I think that most people, I would say, fall into three categories. There's another category that's 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 um, up here, um, and that is, we'll get to it in just a moment, but I think there's, there's three categories of people. There's heart people, there's hands people, and there's head people. Now, you may cross-pollinate between these, but let me explain what I mean by this. This isn't on your notes. It just kind of came to me. Some of you are wired to be very emotional, to be very feeling-oriented, to be very passionate. You resonate with... Um, that whole feeling, empathy, longing, heart. You you just have a big heart. Some of you like to do things with your hands. And you may not, ha- not that you don't care, but you're not very empathetic and, and you may not be a passionate person, but you like to serve. You like to do things with your hands. You like to get dirty. You like to really um, serve God by doing things that are practical. And some of you are theology nerds like me where you're like really like books and you like to study and you're, you're, you're really into you know apologetics and you you know you like to fill your head with knowledge and learn more and all that type of stuff do you think that's true for the most part I'm not going to ask you to identify yourself unless you want to so do so here's the problem not that it's a bad thing but here's the problem you're a whole person and I think God is meant for us to integrate all three together Be a healthy person. Now, you're obviously going to be balanced, you're going to be drawn towards what your personality is, but I think the danger is if you're a heart person, you can become so empathetic and so loving that you just kind of throw truth out the window and say, well, let's just let them get away with whatever they want because we love them. If you're a head person, you may say, you know what, it doesn't matter how we feel about things, this is the truth and nothing but the truth, and you can become very legalistic or dogmatic. And the hands people, like, why are you guys worrying about theology and why are you guys worrying about loving people? Let's just go out and do something. Let's just go get, let's go build something. Let's go do something. Let's get things done. Instead of stealing about it and talking about it, let's go do it. And so I think the point is, is you've got to know where you are and realize how you can get imbalanced in that, okay? But when he's talking about here, first of all, he's talking about heart, your passions, your worship, draw near with full assurance. Then he says, okay, lest you forget we need theology we need doctrine hold fast to your confession we find out in jude jude chapter 1 verse 3 jude says this beloved I, I although i was very eager to write to you about our common salvation i found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints that's the confession What's going to happen if we hold fast to the truth of the gospel in the midst of adversity? What does it say there? Let us, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. What's going to happen in our day and age when we want to hold fast to the truth? Without wavering. What's going to happen? Are we going to get beaten up? Are we going to get lambasted? Are we going to get attacked? But what's going to happen? He who promised is faithful. He's our anchor. Back in Hebrews six seventeen, it says, God's, it's impossible for God to lie. He's our great anchor. So think about hope and confession. Now, this last one is interesting because it's, a, it's the last let us, but it's got four parts. Literally in the Greek, it's let us consider one another. Let us consider one another. Which I think is very important because the word consider means to notice, to observe, to understand, to pay attention to the welfare of one another. So he's saying, listen, first of all, I want you to have deep, passionate love for Jesus. Draw near to Him. I also want you to have strong theology and truth to where you hold fast your confession. But you're also a church. And so I want you to consider one another. I want you to pay attention to one another. I want you to be in each other's lives. And so what he does is he gives us four specific ways to look out for one another, to be with one another, to operate as the church. So look at what we said, verse 24. Let us consider. Let us consider one another. Let's let's look out for each other. And here's the first one he does. Let us, so big category, let us consider, let us look out for each other. Four subcategories under that of how this is the way it's structured in the the original text here. He gives four specific ways to look out for each other. The first is stimulate each other to love. My translation says stir up. Does anybody else have a different one? The word stimulate was only used one other time in the Bible. That's when Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement. (laughs) In that context, it was a negative thing. In this context, it's a positive thing. It's like basically saying, all right, I'm going to get in your face and so stimulate you to love. Spur, kick in the pants, spur, stimulate. Question, are we stirring, are we stimulating, are we provoking one another to love? Are we being a loving fellowship? Do we have compassion and mercy to one another? So the first thing he's saying is, here's the first way you consider one another, to look out for each other. Make sure that you're prompting, you're encouraging, you're motivating others to love. Now think about that practically. What are you doing right now to kick somebody in the pants to love? And how do you do that? You do it by loving. I don't think you go up to shake somebody and say, Don, get your act together and start loving. I don't think you do it. I don't think you, I think you I think you stimulate, especially when she's your wife. You don't do that. Um, that's I picked on her because anybody else had to go up to and shake them, that may be a little scared. But um, how do you motivate somebody to love? You can't guilt them into loving. You love them. You motivate somebody to love by loving them. So We are to love each other to love. Make sense? In a very stimulating, spurring each other on type of way. Okay? Number two, stimulate each other to good works. Not just provoke each other to love each other, but... Encourage one another to good works. So this is really a tangible expression of this agape type love. He says there, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So usually your love is shown, manifested in the good works. 1 John 3.18 says this, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Some translations, they say in action. Put your love into action with tangible concrete expressions so love each other motivate each other to good works but then here's the third thing he says don't forsake or give up or neglect the meeting together verse 25 not not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some this was a strong word for forsake don't forsake. Now, obviously, we don't know the context, but evidently some in the church didn't think they needed others. They just stayed home on the Lord's Day. It was their habit. What does yours say, as is the habit of some? You know what the Greek word is there? It's the Greek word ethos. You guys know what the word ethos means? It's like your um, culture. It's your habit. It's your way of life. It had become their way of life. It had become their habit. It had become their pattern to what? Stay away from the assembling together. It had become their lifestyle. Now, it could have been fear of persecution, as we'll find out. Some of them were being put in prison. And they might have said, you know what? I don't want to be put in prison. I don't want to associate with people being put in prison. So let that happen to those people. I'm done with this church thing. I don't want to be persecuted. So, This doesn't mean that you have to be at church every time the doors are open. We're not going to be legalistic here and say, if you don't come to church every Sunday, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, every time the doors are open, you're in violation of not neglecting to meet together. I don't think that's what he's saying. What he's saying is, has it become such a lifestyle that you are not gathering and assembling and being together with your church family? If it's become a lifestyle to where you're not part of the church family anymore, you're sinning, he's saying. Now, the question is, why do we need to gather together? Have you ever thought about that? Every single one of you could stay home on a Sunday morning, you could listen to the praise songs we do in church on your iPod, and I could email you my sermon and you can read it. And you'd get the same exact content (laughs) at home by yourself that you'd get coming here. (laughs) content-wise. You get the same songs and the same sermon. Is that the way it's meant to be? What are you missing out on? Why do we come together? Is it important to gather together? Why is it important? It was... Let me tell you how hard it was last week to not be here. When my wife and my son got in the car to come to church, and of course I wasn't in a condition to do it, and so I just prayed and spent time with the Lord. And but I'm, the whole time I'm just thinking, I really miss being at church. And so that's just one Sunday, and I'm the pastor. Um, but I'm you know sometimes pastors wake up and say, man, I don't I don't want to go to that church. And your wife like, you got to go. You're you're the pastor. You can't. You don't have a choice. You heard that old joke haven't you? the guys in bays like, oh, I don't want to go to work today. I hate that place. I hate those people. This is my least favorite job. I don't want to go. This is terrible. His wife says, honey, you got to go. It's Sunday morning. You're the pastor. And so that's not my attitude at all. But my, the point is, is that we need each other. We need to gather. There's something powerful about being together just to show that we're together. There's something powerful about singing together. There's something about modeling to our children and to the younger generation what it means to be together. There's something about corporately sitting under the Word at one time, all hearing the power of the Word. Uh, There's something about giving our tithes and offerings together, fellowshipping, greeting, all the things that happen in corporate worship. It's very important that we not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. And then the last one he says is encouraging. Encouraging one another. It's really to come alongside of, to get down in somebody's life, to um, walk alongside them. He used that word earlier in Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why are we to encourage that? Now He, he, he brings all of this into an urgency. There's an urgency here. What does he say? Listen, he's basically saying this. If we can wrap everything up, he's saying from, from chapter 4 up to right here, he's saying, listen, the greatest news I can tell you, Hebrews, is that the Old Testament sacrificial system was never able to do what you thought it could do. It's useless. It's gone. The new covenant has been instituted. Jesus has died as the perfect high priest once and for all. It's a completed atonement. He's given you full access to the very throne of God. He's your great high priest, so draw near to him. Passionately pursue him. Come near to Him. Worship Him. And then hold fast to your theology and then also love each other and encourage each other as the church. Why is there such an urgency? What does he say there? All the more, the end of verse 25, all the more as you see the day drawing near. What's the day drawing near? In light of the return of Christ, we should be encouraging and motivating and exhorting each other to spiritual transformation so that we will be ready for the Lord's return. This returning of the Lord should be our motivation for godly living.